This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. Joining me today is Austin Whitman, CEO of Climate Neutral, to discuss corporate greenwashing as it relates to the climate crisis. Austin, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you again, David. Thank you again. Listeners will recall I interviewed Austin almost to the date, September 30th last year, regarding attaining climate neutral certification. Again, Austin Bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Uh, on background, and this is going to be a few sentences, on background first, greenwashing is generally defined as a PR or marketing practice used to deceptively persuade the public an organization is, is conducting environmentally or behaving in an environmentally responsible manner. Concerning recent events, in response to uh, revealed comments this summer uh, by an Exxon lobbyist about undermining the administration's efforts to address the climate crisis last week, the House Oversight Committee requested documents by Exxon and others regarding the industry's long-running campaign to spread disinformation about the climate crisis, and the committee requested further last week that executives from Exxon, BP, Chevron, Shell, and others testify before the committee on October 28th. Earlier this month, the New England Journal of Medicine published an editorial calling for emergency action to limit global temperature increases. However, the editorial concluded by noting, quote-unquote, health institutions have already divested more than $42 billion in assets from fossil fuels, citing evidence uh, presented or noted in the 2020 Lancet Countdown Report. The $42 billion figure constituted, however, the sum total of assets held by 23 international health institutions that pledged to divest in fossil fuels. The actual divested amount by these 23 international health institutions, as reported in the 2020 Countdown Report, was actually a total of $886 million for 2018 and 2019. Sometime this week, the National Academy of Medicine is expected to finally make known their effort over the past year to form a so-called action collaborative to address the climate crisis. It is feared this action collaborative, substantively composed of healthcare industry executives, will result in greenwashing whereby corporate participants paint themselves green by making zero net zero pledges by some distant year. Finally, I'll note research published by Drs. Emily Sine and Philip Landrigan in JAMA in 2018 that concluded, quote-unquote, the healthcare delivery sector lags far behind other economic sectors in adopting sustainability reporting, close quote. For example, while 52% of all Fortune 500 companies publicly report their carbon emissions via the Carbon Disclosure Project, only 13% of Fortune 500 healthcare companies do so. With me again to discuss greenwashing and what to do about it is, again, Climate Neutral's CEO, Austin Whitman. So that's uh, somewhat lengthy, but I do want to make these related points on background. Let me start, Austin, by asking you just generally your, uh, this question. What's been your or your organization's experience regarding uh, greenwashing, again, related to the carbon crisis? Well, David, gr- great intro. I think that's a, a great tee up for a really important 
topic. And while I don't think I have any, you know, miraculous answers as to how to prevent greenwashing, I think one of the basic tests of whether a company is really making something um, sound like more than it is, uh, or whether a company is actually taking real action is just a the simple question of how much money they are now spending to do the thing that they say that they're doing versus how much money they, you know, promise to spend at some point in the future. And our experience with this, um, I, I guess, you know, my own personal experience with this goes back, you know, to 20 years ago when we saw a lot of shift in how fossil fuel companies were talking about themselves and how really every company out there decided that it had to talk about something that was green or um, environmental or uh, sustainable to some degree. And my favorite, one of my favorite examples is the shift to paperless billing. I love it when I get these flyers in the mail and, and this is, you know, going back 20 years, flyers in the mail where it's like, all right, we've gone green, switch yourself to paperless billing. And, you know, it's, it's great to save paper and all, but right. the reality is that's just a cost saving measure for, for companies. So I think, you know, when, when you, when, when a majority of a message of a company uh, as it com- as it relates to the environment focuses on something as meaningless as paperless billing, you know, that's to me is, is one kind of symptom of greenwashing. It's sort of when, when the basically the entire channel is taken up by this, claim of doing something meaningful when the impact of that is is really meaningless sort of like the 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 paper paper straw syndrome to me which is to say that you know people feel great about their environmental credentials when they switch from a plastic to a paper straw and as we all know or i hope people know that's not really going to solve much thank you would would you say again this is your subjective assessment would you say this practice is becoming um more widespread. I mean, it, and and I think your your two examples were were a a form of greenwashing. I think one could say in that relative to paperless billing and uh, uh, paper straws, in that the industry, in fact, particularly the fossil fuel industry, has been criticized by trying to make this problem um, the responsibility of individuals. It's not a, it's not the responsibility of a corporation certainly not the fossil fuel industry. It's what individuals need to do and, and, what, and the way they need to change their behavior. So again, that's, that's argued as, as, a, as under the definition of greenwashing. But would you say that um, this has increasingly reached higher art form or would you say um, uh, corporations are coming around to uh, being more uh, genuine and uh, legitimately responsive? Uh, you know, I think overall what we're seeing is an increase in the number of, I'm just going to try to use a generic word, the number of actions that companies are taking. And I I choose that word deliberately because, you know, that an action can range from a huge investment in something Mm -hmm. near term to a huge promise to do something 50 years from now. Uh, and that's not a joke. You know, we've seen 
um, companies talk about 2070 as their time frame for getting to net zero. Um, so when you have, I think, just an overall explosion of the number of programs, pledges, the number of actions that companies are stating, you're going to see some of those actions actually be meaningful, um, but you're also going to see an increase in the number of actions that companies are are claiming just for the sake of having something to say out there, right? And, you know, the extent to which marketing and PR folks are looking for something to say right now around climate, just because of the increase in attention to climate, you know, it's, it's very significant. And we're seeing some companies make meaningful commitments and, and others, others not. Right. So on balance, uh, you might juxtapose, uh, though nobody's perfect, uh, sort of the, the poster child may be in the fossil fuel industry, Royal Dutch Shell, touting its oil industry as an oil industry leader on green energy. And But when you look at their commitment, uh, it's less than 10% of their spending on renewables, juxtapose the, I, I would say, probably slightly better, certainly maybe the auto industry um, that now seems to be genuinely serious about moving rapidly uh, to EVs. Let me go to um, the healthcare industry uh, specifically. I noted this JAMA study by Sine and uh, Landrigan uh, um, because obviously uh, it's interesting uh, why the healthcare industry, whose mission more than any other industry aligns with um, addressing the health effects of the climate crisis, how and why, in your sense, again, your subjective assessment, how and why is the healthcare industry so out of step? Uh, at least, and of course, public reporting is not a heavy lift. Uh, the heavy lift is actually mm-hmm. meeting uh, whatever desired goals expressed, but just publicly reporting, whether it's through um, carbon disclosure or whomever, is just that, public mm-hmm. reporting. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I... I would, I, I don't, I would, I don't have a great answer for this. I, I think the, um, you know, the, the healthcare industry in general kind of is seen as above and apart from a lot of other industries because it's so instrumental and indispensable and it's an essential service. Um, you know, I guess one could argue that the government has done a decent job of disclosure and reporting, but who reads government reports on sustainability? Um, you know, not, not, not really anyone. And that's because they do it because of compliance or, you know, public transparency and not because of a marketing team is going to push it out the door and make sure that people actually read it. So I guess I'd maybe put, um, you know, healthcare reporting in that same type of bucket where it, it just isn't a product that, that a, that a marketing team, in the industry would typically kind of want to want to push. And so it just wouldn't get a, a whole lot of, of eyes. And maybe that's my sort of mm-hmm. guess as to why we haven't seen a lot. Um, and the metrics that the industry reports are much more focused on, of course, health outcomes as opposed to environmental outcomes. Um, it's it's a certainly a mistake to try to separate those things. And, right, right. Um, it's something you and I talked about the last time we chatted was um, just the incredible link between environmental quality and and health. Mm-hmm. But um, for whatever reason is underlying it, yes, I mean, I think it's, it, we, we haven't seen a, a, a ton of activity um, in this space. I, I mentioned Kaiser, I think, as, as one right. of the leaders in this last time. And um, I, I think, you know, larger health systems have 
taken some steps to try to analyze their energy use. Um, one of the earlier kind of waves of, of more efficient technology adoption was that hospitals, because of the tremendous amount of energy used in both um, electricity and in, in heat, it would made it made a perfect uh, kind of test case, per- perfect ground for installing combined heat and power units, which uh, which do have some uh, energy efficiency benefits over traditional you know electricity generation and and steam generation. Mm-hmm. You can do them together on a single site. So we've seen that a little bit to some extent on on kind of on health campuses, but um, with respect to more kind of overall carbon measurement, carbon tracking, carbon reporting. Um, I think, you know, I think the industry just doesn't focus on that in the way that consumer facing companies do, because it just isn't being asked of them. Right. I, I, I'd be difficult to disagree with that. Absolutely correct. Let me ask you a question more in line with your, um, your work uh, or altogether in line with your work. And this gets at uh, certification in context of defining net zero in part uh, via avoided emissions. I mean, this this mm-hmm. this gets very. Um, it's not that subtle, but I think it is an important point that um, when do we get to the point where uh, we no longer consider that part of the formula or the net zero formula that being avoided emissions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what you're getting at is basically, you know, there's different different ways to eliminate emissions, and the way we kind of characterize it, there's there's avoided emissions, there's emission removals, and then there's emission reductions from from the perspective of a company. Mm-hmm. And so, if I'm, if I'm a company that avoids emissions, I'm doing something to invest in renewable energy so that future electricity that I consume doesn't come from fossil energy. So that would be kind of avoided emissions. Um, And then captured emissions or removed emissions are, you know, from technologies that suck suck emissions out of the air. And then reductions would be within my own supply chain where I'm actually just changing processes um, and uh, energy efficiency uh, arguably, is a reduction measure, and uh, that I'm changing changing processes and changing operations to make sure that my emissions go down. Um, the you know, the, the, and this is this is definitely a a complex thing to kind of come to a single answer on. And you know, part of it comes to what we need in the world as a whole. Mm-hmm. And there's no question in my mind that we need more money flowing into avoiding emissions because, you know, the energy sector is the elephant in the room, you know, 35 billion tons of carbon emissions. And when I hear people say, oh, but we can't drive carbon finance into renewable energy projects because it's just avoiding emissions. It feels like, you know, when did we move on from the energy sector being part of the problem to, you know, a point where, oh, we can't use climate finance to transform the energy sector. We have to do, we have to focus on other stuff. It just it kind of feels like you're skipping past that elephant to you know maybe the mouse in the corner, and uh, and so that's a real a real challenge for me. And I think that companies that we work with are trying to find ways to do this 
creatively in their supply chains, but you know, frankly, they struggle, mm-hmm. and you know, they're they're looking to use uh, their own money to decarbonize the energy sector, and that's one way to do it. Um, the way we think about this in terms of the overall, or, or I, I guess the way we think about this is in terms of an overall uh, portfolio where a share of emission uh, you know, mitigation measures that a company takes should come from avoidance and a share should come from removals. And of those removals, some portion of that should come from technology and some should come from nature. And this is, this is consistent with how... Um, you know, the Oxford kind of, there's this, there's this document that came out last year, which is called the Oxford Principles. And it, it kind of promotes this idea that, you know, you're, you're going to have to phase in different things over time, but at least based on where we are today, avoidance is still very, very important. Okay. Uh, thank you. Let's, let's go to policy uh, solutions uh, to try to uh, police, for lack of a better term, police these greenwashing behaviors and the one uh, I'm, I'm sure you're at least aware about, of, um, and that's the EU. Uh, it's now proposed, but they are proposing uh, what's termed the Corporate Sustainability Report Directive. Uh, this would go, if finalized uh, next year, would go in effect in 24. Uh, the CSRD, mm-hmm. it was released earlier this April. It would, uh, require, I think the guesstimated number is something like 49,000 companies to report. Uh, there are six general uh, goals to this. Uh, uh, one is termed, interestingly, double materiality, which means you have to report on the, your inward impacts of your carbon footprint and then also your uh, impacts outward uh, as well. You would, be, you, would, you would still be required. There would be audits of these uh, documents. And, and other aspects to this. I bring this up because, of course, even under Paris, a lot of these pledges are basically faith-based, again, for lack of a better phrase. Um, mm-hmm. uh, where, what's your sense of the required or requisite uh, mandated uh, reporting such that, as way of an example, EU has proposed? Mm-hmm. I'll give you just my flat out view on this, which is, this is, you know, 20 years too late. Right. And, you know, the, the, the carbon disclosure project was kind of the, the first major coordinated effort to try to get companies to report on carbon. And um, I think it's, you know, when, when you look at the actual costs that are incurred when a company has to report on these kinds of things, carbon and what have you, um, they're de minimis, and it's it's totally inexcusable for the corporate sector to not have a better you know status quo on on reporting. And I and frankly, I think it's abysmal that governments haven't demanded more. Um, and and the thing that I always try to remind people is that just because you're reporting on something doesn't mean you're doing anything about it. Right. So if it's taken us 20 years, you know, to get to a point where only a third of companies are actually reporting on their supply chain emissions. Which is this, you know, com- commonly known as their scope three emissions. How long is it going to take us to actually do something about them? Um, so, I mean, I, I guess I don't want to try to sound too cynical, but you know, if it's going to be three or four more years before there's any sort of widespread reporting of this nature, I mean, this this process started arguably 20 years ago with CDP, or at least more recently 
I think it was something like six or seven years ago where the initial EU directives were put into place that led to the current wave of you know requirements around reporting. So what kind of timeline are we on here, right? I mean, are, are we on a are we on a bureaucratic timeline that kind of gives us 50 years to do something, or are we on a climate timeline which is you know 10 years to actually take meaningful steps to reduce emissions? Um, and and then just again, like it does not cost companies. It, it sure sure it costs money. There's no question about that to hire audit, uh, you know accounting firms and auditors and what have you. But is that not a cost that we're willing to willing to bear? It, it, it absolutely must be. Right. I think uh, I couldn't agree more. In fact, you know, just to rephrase, certainly the effects of global warming are are running faster, far faster than government and regulation. Um, in fact, the, the phrase you'll hear in D.C., which is the definition of our, our problem overall, which is the pace of government problem. Um, mm -hmm. you know, this is, we're relative to our window. Or this is being addressed in a far too a slow a fashion. Let mm -hmm. me, um, th there are, there are all sorts of other uh, variations on, uh, greenwashing. One of them is these leaving aside the out year window of these pledges. Uh, many of them often assume, uh, uh, negative energy, uh, technology, NET, uh, or technological mm -hmm. fixes that really don't exist, at least certainly not, uh, are they financially feasible? Um, so th there's sort of, there's definitely that aspect. Um, there's, of course, the more favored, um, the carbon market uh, approach, uh, which is baked in Article 6 of the Paris Accord. Um, some people would argue, while in theory they sound great, uh, selling, trading, exchanging uh, credits, on balance, they're, uh, they, they do more harm because they pretend to be a, a solution and, of course, don't comply or fit with the window available to us or how long we have to um, uh, left to address this. You know, it's the old line of we need to stop digging the hole. Um, mm -hmm. So my general question is, relative to the pace of government, what's, mm -hmm. what are more feasible, uh, effective approaches here? Yeah, um, I thought you were going to go in a different direction, okay. which is what are the what are the other um, you know what are the other forms of greenwashing? But that sort of focuses on on the, on the critique of this whole thing. I think now that you're asking a better question, which is what what else is there to do um, that you know that isn't being done right now? Uh, you know, from my perspective, there's there's a lot more room for voluntary voluntary action in this space. And, um, you know, that's not because it's the best answer to the question, but it certainly feels like one of the most significant opportunities. And um, frankly, there's not really a, a limit to how much companies and individuals can do how soon. It's just a question of you know, of deciding to act and, and, and choosing to, to start to put money into the money into the problem. You know, you touched on sort of the effectiveness of carbon markets and carbon credits. And um, while there definitely has been a challenging history to date, one thing I, I think is really important for everyone to kind of recognize is that the voluntary market and voluntary carbon market is about to reach a billion dollars in volume, which is 
an absolute just you know pinhead compared to mm-hmm. compared to what's what's needed right and a billion dollars is like it's a joke right it, that's that's revenues for you know a relatively small company and that's the entire global market for these things um so i think a lot of the a lot of the challenge where where people get hung up is is basically saying well we we have these national targets under paris and companies have to meet those and if we suddenly introduce a carbon credit that might interfere with those targets or be double counted and um the answer is that we're so far away from both of those we're so far away from the you know the the size of the voluntary market actually being big enough to be meaningful and we're so so far away from actually hitting those national targets it's like what what do you do i mean just you just need to do everything that you possibly can and then do it kind of 10 times more um and you know my uh general sense is that there has been growth in a market which is pretty quick in the market for for carbon abatement which is pretty quickly led to a supply response but that no one's really asking the question of how you kind of turn that market into something that starts to get at the systemic causes of of emissions which are in the transportation and energy sectors mm-hmm. um so you know the more companies can choose to choose to take immediate action and individuals who, who do the same i think you know it's going to put us further ahead far further ahead than we'll get with any type of regulatory process that has to unfold over a period of a decade or more right i appreciate that uh, that is my uh, first and foremost concern with this national academy of medicine effort it's it's supposed to they're supposed to this week uh, make public or release a press release about this action collaborative um, I don't know if it will state, but I know that this action collaborative has been in the works for a year, which tells you or suggests how long uh, this will play out or over mm-hmm. what period of time. I, I have to ask you, Austin, of course, um, you know, the in- considerable anticipation over this uh, Glasgow meeting, uh, COP26 uh, conference mm-hmm. of participants. Uh, there's a lot riding on this, to say the least. Uh, there was that the meeting mm-hmm. was canceled because of the pandemic last year. Um, mm-hmm. Going into it, and I'll just say on related matters, you do know the the president was uh, encouraged, let's just say, uh, to declare a climate emergency uh, when he took office. Of course, the UK, Japan, New Zealand, and others have done such, and more more uh, uh, materially, uh, ban exports of crude oil. Uh, maybe withdraw remaining offshore unleased waters from further leasing. And there's a lot of tangible things that he could done that the administration has not done. Um, you know, that these two, uh, the upcoming meeting, what the administration could do that still hasn't done by way of suggestion. What do you think will come out of COP26, particularly as it relates uh, to U.S. efforts? And let's try to be optimistic yeah, think, here. <laughs> right. I mean, I think I think it depends in some ways on what the Congress is able to get done in the next, you know, between now and then, because yeah, that right. will kind of, that will, that will dictate what our negotiators have in their pocket when it comes to getting to the global table. And not surprisingly, um, no one's willing to take the U S seriously based on our history of, you know, going back to, you know, going back to Kyoto days or yeah, know, the 90s. Not, not joining Kyoto days. Right. 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 Going back to the nineties. Exactly. I mean, um, you know the 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 history that the U.S. has in this 
in this space has basically been, you know, the world needs to act, but, you know, we'll kind of sit on the sidelines. And mm -hmm. I don't think that anything that we've seen in the last administration gave us any, you know, anything better to go on. Biden certainly in short time made climate front and center um, as a legislative priority, not explicitly as a climate policy, but implicitly through spending and budget and infrastructure and what have you. Right. Build back so, better. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. With, with the, with the subhead of build back better. And, and that means, you know, decarbonizing the economy. So, and, and there have been some executive orders that have focused on, sure. you know, oil and gas drilling and other things and some, some reversals of uh, regulatory decisions that were taken uh, under the last administration around things that the EPA was already, you know, often regulating, you know, things like methane, um, but, uh, you know, we've kind of gotten back to where we were as far as going forward. You know, we've set some we set like to say we set a vision by the administration set a vision for, you know, significant cuts in carbon. But there needs to be a, a um, an actual foundation for that and a way to get there. And the real question is whether we'll be able to get in in the next few weeks, get some progress on cleaning up the electric sector in a way that will actually chart a credible path toward hitting those reduction goals. And if not, then I think you, you expect that COP26 ends up being, you know, a lot like previous COPs, which is, you know, some reasonable negotiations, maybe some high level principle statements, but a real lack of, of, you know, kind of clarity as to how countries are going to get to where they say that they, they want to go. Right. So the, uh, should the House pass this week the so-called hard infrastructure, that only has what's guesstimated to be 5% of the administration's climate uh, policy. The remaining percent is in the soft so-called um, uh, infrastructure bill, uh, and that's the clean energy standard uh, and the $150 billion in grant monies in part. Uh, a lot of people say that's far from uh, adequate. Um, but you're right. I mean, going into the meeting in in uh, a month's time would be helpful if if the U.S. could demonstrate um, having moved some legislation. Um, my last question for you, uh, you probably know a couple Mondays ago, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services uh, created this OCCHE, Office of Climate Change and uh, Health Equity. Uh, it's out of the Office of the Secretary for Health. You know, it's a standard bureaucratic, you know, we don't know what to do. Let's start an office, create an office. Although I, I think genuinely, I, I do think there's a genuine interest in, in equating the two and making progress within the department. But if you were talking to um, OCCHE staff, uh, what would you say? Congratulations for right, right. starting. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think something that you were just alluding to is how helpful is it to have just, you know, another bureaucratic office kind of focused on a problem that's, that's well, well identified and understood, um, you know, to the extent that the, that this, that this effort can bring more voices and, and therefore more kind of lobbying influence to the table um, that will help shift the politics even further in favor of, you know, what, what, appeared to be close just 10 years ago on climate, but, but never really happened. I mean, then I think you, then I think you get somewhere. And I, but I think mm -hmm. that, you know, 
uh, well, I guess no, I should say like that, that get, does, does mean that, you know, potentially the, the voices in favor are, are more numerous and um, there are more points of interest. Human health has in general been a very uh, strong sort of arguing point when it comes to getting policy passed, especially when you can value the cost of humans, human life. But um, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, we, we've got, we've got sort of for the first time ever a more centralized view of climate and how it crosses, cuts across all government agencies. Um, and that's in, in the form of kind of our, our climate czar. Um, and, and yet I just, you know, I, I don't know how much the existence of a new office is going to accelerate the, uh, other than providing more analysis and more, um, you know, more funding. I don't know how much it accelerates the, the political support for what we need to, what we need to see. So, um, yeah. So, so let's, let's try to find ways to make this, to design this and design the, design the agenda um, in a way that, that supports progress. Right. Right. Again, stop digging the hole. So uh, Austin, rather mm-hmm. time, I, I, I do appreciate this candid uh, assessment or con uh, response to these questions um, genuinely. So we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, it's the old line, uh, I'm drowning, so stop uh, uh, describing the water to me. Um, so with that, Austin, thank you again for your time. I'm appreciative. Well, thanks. It's a great discussion as as always. Thanks for having me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.